From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. In 2008, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in D.C. versus Heller that the Second Amendment protects the individual right to have a gun in the home for self-defense. The case of McDonald versus City of Chicago followed two years later, finding that this individual right is enforceable in the states. On June 23rd of this year, 2022, the court issued its decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, finding that the Second Amendment guarantees not only the right to keep arms in the home, but also to bear or carry them outside the home. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and in this special episode of Keep and Bear Radio, we're going to listen to key excerpts from oral arguments in the landmark Bruin case. The proceeding took place on November 3rd of 2021, lasting nearly two hours, and putting on full display the strength and logic of the argument in favor of concealed carry and the ignorance and disdain of the argument against. At question in this case is New York's century-old law that requires anyone applying for an unrestricted license to carry a concealed firearm outside the home to show proper cause. The state of New York defines proper cause in a way that makes it difficult, if not impossible, for most people to acquire a license. You must demonstrate that you have a special and specific need to defend yourself. The rich and famous, and those with political connections, can get licenses with ease, but ordinary residents of the state, especially those in New York City, are unlikely to do so. Robert Nash and Brandon Koch challenged the law after New York rejected their concealed carry applications based on their failure to show proper cause, even though they met every other requirement. In presenting the case to the court, attorney Paul Clement argued that the Second Amendment enshrines the right to not only keep arms in the home, but also to bear arms outside the home for self-defense. Given that New York prohibits open carry and in practice severely limits concealed carry, his client's rights are being infringed. He pointed out that carrying a gun in public is a right enjoyed by residents of 43 other states. He stressed that when it comes to a constitutional right, people should not have to satisfy a government official that there is a good reason to exercise the right. Here is Clement's brief but powerful opening argument. We will hear argument this morning in Case 2843, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Mr. Clement? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the text of the Second Amendment enshrines a right not just to keep arms, but to bear them. And the relevant history and tradition, exhaustively surveyed by this Court in the Heller decision, confirm that the text protects an individual right 
to carry firearms outside the home for purposes of self-defense. Indeed, that history is so clear that New York no longer contests that carrying a handgun outside of the home for purposes of self-defense is constitutionally protected activity. But that concession dooms New York's law, which makes it a crime for a typical law-abiding New Yorker to exercise that constitutional right. This court in Heller labeled the very few comparable laws that restricted all outlets for carrying firearms outside the home for self-defense outliers that were rightly condemned in decisions like none against Georgia. New York likens its law to a restriction on weapons in sensitive places. But the difference between a sensitive place law and New York's regime is fundamental. It is the difference between regulating constitutionally protected activity and attempting to convert a fundamental constitutional right into a privilege that can only be enjoined by those who can demonstrate to the satisfaction of a government official that they have an atypical need for the exercise of that right. That is not how constitutional rights work. Carrying a firearm outside the home is a fundamental constitutional right. It is not some extraordinary action that requires an extraordinary demonstration of need. Petitioners here seek nothing more than their fellow citizens in 43 other states already enjoy, and those states include some of the most populous cities in the country. Those states, like New York, limit the firearms in sensitive places but do not prohibit carrying for self-defense in any location typically open to the general public. The liberal justices pushed back questioning Clement's interpretation of the history of gun laws. But the most revealing line of questioning came from Justice Breyer, who made no pretense of a legal argument and instead revealed his disdain of guns and his fear of ordinary citizens being armed in high-population areas like New York City. Here is just one example. Uh, You think that uh, in New York City... Uh, people should have a considerable freedom to carry concealed weapons. I think that people of good moral character who start drinking a lot and who may be there for a football game or, or some kind of soccer game can get pretty angry at each other. And if they each have a concealed weapon, who knows? And there are plenty of statistics in these briefs to show there are some people who do know. And a lot of people end up dead. Okay? So... Or what are we supposed to do? To sort of float around, like with NYU, and say, uh, hey, oh, this is the rule. It seems to work out in upstate New York. We don't know, of course, and we do know that your client is carrying a concealed weapon because he has a right to in some instances, and uh, even following Heller and following the history, which I thought was wrong. Uh, even so, what are we supposed to say, in your opinion, that is going to be clear enough that we will not produce a kind of uh, gun-related chaos. So, Justice Breyer, I would sort of point you to two things that maybe would give you some comfort. I mean, one is the experience of the 43 states, and there are amicus briefs on both sides getting into the empirical evidence, but there really isn't the case that those 43 states that include very large cities like Phoenix, like Houston, like Chicago, 
They have not had demonstrably worse problems with this than the five or six states that have the regime that New York has. So that's one place to look. The other place that I think you would find some, some, something persuasive there is their own amicus brief on their side by the city of Chicago. Because the city of Chicago is in a shall-issue jurisdiction. Um, and the city of Chicago goes on to sort of, you know, essentially brag about all of the ways that they've done consistent with that regime to reduce crime in Chicago that probably doesn't have a direct analog in downstate Illinois. But, of course, you know, what, one of the problems with this case... I mean, most people think, think that Chicago is, like, the, the world's worst city with respect to gun violence, Mr. Clement. Chicago and their corporate... Chicago doesn't think that, but everybody else thinks it about Chicago. And nobody thinks that about Phoenix, and nobody thinks that about Houston, and nobody thinks that about Dallas, and nobody thinks that about San Diego, which even though it's in a uh, restricted state, is a shall-issue jurisdiction. Thank you, uh, Mr. Clement. The idea of not wanting guns in highly populated areas is a key argument made by Barbara Underwood, the Solicitor General of New York. Here's an audio clip where Justice Thomas and then Chief Justice Roberts question this argument, leading up to an amusing but very telling exchange between Underwood and Roberts about the absurdity of only being able to carry in low-population areas like out in the woods. Uh, General Underwood, you seem to rely a bit on the density of the uh, population. You say, I think, that states like New York have uh, high-density areas. Um, And the implicit in that is that um, the more rural an area is, the more unnecessary a strict rule is. So when when you suggest that, how rural does the area have to be before uh, your restrictions uh, shouldn't apply? Well, um, I, I think the way the New York statute works is consistent with a reasonable rule, which is that there's not a cutoff, there's not a number at which things change, but that licenses, unrestricted licenses, are much more readily available in more in, in less densely populated upstate counties than they are in uh, dense metropolitan areas. And that is a virtue of the system of having licenses handled by licensing officers who are part of the local community um, and who take uh, the density of population into account as well as the uh, many other factors. Well, the Mr. Nash lives in a quite a low-density area. That's why I'm interested in where your cutoff is. Uh, it's one thing to talk about Manhattan or NYU's campus. It's another to talk about uh, rural upstate New York. He actually lives in what I would call an intermediate area. He lives in Rensselaer County, which is not that far from Albany, and it contains the city of Troy and a university and um, a downtown shopping district. But it also contains uh, substantial rural areas. And that is precisely what the licensing officer here was taking into account when he made the differentiation between you know, don't take it to the shopping mall, don't take it downtown, but 
but you can take it in the in the sort of backcountry areas. Thank you. General, you, you mentioned that the, the gun is, I, I guess, permits are re- more readily available in a less populated area. Uh, unrestricted permits. Unrestricted permits. Are, are more readily available in less populated areas, yes. Now, Heller relied on the right to defense uh, uh, as a basis for its reading of the, of the Second Amendment, or that was its reading. Now, I would think that arises in more populated areas. If you're out in the woods, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to run into someone who's going to rob you on the street. Uh, on the other hand, there are uh, places in a, in a densely populated city where it's more likely that that's where you're going to need a gun for self-defense. And, uh, you know, however many uh, 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 policemen are assigned, uh, that you know, there are high-crime areas. And it seems to me that what you're saying is that's — probably the last place that someone's going to get a permit to carry a gun. How is that, regardless of what we think of the policy of that, how is that consistent with Heller's reasoning that the reason the Second Amendment applies a a direct personal right is for self-defense? Well, I'll say a couple of things about that. One, we if you go right to history and tradition, the history was to um, regulate most strenuously in densely populated places. That's what fairs and markets are. So we have history. But we also have a rationale for that history, which is that where there is dense population, there is also the deterrent of lots of people, and there is the availability of law enforcement. In, in England, the idea was that it was the king's peace, and it was, in fact, an insult to the king for people to take things into their own hands. Well, but that's of- not always true. Uh, it depends, obviously, in the uh, jurisdiction and all that, but simply because a place is well, it's paradoxical that you say a place is a high-crime area, but don't worry about it because there are a lot of police around. Well, and the other thing is that this is th- that these regulations are all an effort to accommodate the right to, to recognize and, and respect the right of self-defense while regulating it to protect um, the public safety. And in areas where people are packed densely together, as the questioning that just happened um, displays, um, the risks of harm from people who are packed shoulder to shoulder, all having guns, are much more acute than they are. Oh, sure. And I can understand, for example, a regulation that says you can't carry a gun into, you know, giant stadium, uh, just because a lot of things are going on there and it may not be safe to have for people to have guns. On the other hand, if the purpose of the Second Amendment is to allow people to protect themselves, that's implicated when you're in a high-crime area. It's not implicated when you're out in the woods. Well, I, I'll, uh, I think it is implicated when you're out in the woods. It's just a different set of problems. I mean, you're, you're deserted there, and you can't, and law enforcement is not available to come to your aid if something does happen. But well, how many muggings take place in the forest? Um... If we, if we, uh... how many do you think? In addition to the silly population argument, Solicitor General Underwood also argues that people should have a specific and atypical need before being allowed to carry a firearm for self defense. Justice Samuel Alito forcefully argues the absurdity and unfairness of this position. Could I, could I explore what that means uh, for ordinary law-abiding citizens who feel they need 
to carry a firearm for self-defense. So I want you to think about people like this, uh, people who work late at night in Manhattan. It might be somebody who cleans offices, might be a doorman at an apartment, might be a nurse or an orderly, might be somebody who washes dishes. None of these people has a criminal record. They're all law-abiding citizens. They get off work around midnight, maybe even after midnight. They have to commute home by subway, maybe by bus. When they arrive at the subway station or the bus stop, they have to walk some distance through a high-crime area, and they apply for a license, and they say, look, nobody has has said, I am going to mug you next Thursday. However, there have been a lot of muggings in this area, and I am scared to death. They do not get licenses. Is that right? That is in general right, yes. If there's nothing particular to them, that's right. How is that consistent with the core right to self-defense, which is protected by the Second Amendment? Because the core right to self-defense doesn't as, as this court said, doesn't allow for all to, to be armed for all possible confrontations in all places. No, it doesn't. But it, it doesn't mean that there is the right to self-defense for celebrities and state judges and retired police officers, but pretty much not for the kind of ordinary people who have a real felt need to carry a gun to protect themselves. Well, if that ordinary per- Mr. Nash had a, a, a concern about his parking lot and he got a permit, I think the extra problem in Manhattan is that you, uh, your hypothetical quite appropriately entailed the subways, entailed pr- public transit, and, and there are lots of people on the subways even at midnight, as I can say from personal experience, and the particular specter of a lot of armed people in an enclosed space. Um, there, are, there are a lot of armed people uh, on the streets of New York and in the subways late at night right now, aren't there? I don't know that there are a lot of armed people. No? I how many, there are people, how many there are people illegal, with illegal guns, if yeah, that's, that's what, what I'm talking about. Yeah. How many illegal guns were seized by the, by the New York Police Department uh, last year? Do you have, do you have any idea? I don't have that number, but I'm sure there's a, it's a substantial number. But the people, all, all these people with illegal guns, they're on the subway. They're walking around the streets. But the ordinary, hardworking, law-abiding people I mentioned, no, they can't be armed. Well, I think the subways, are, when there are problems on the subways, are protected by the, the, the transit police, is what happens. Because the idea of proliferating arms on the subway is precisely, I think, what terrifies a great many people. Um, The other point is that proliferating guns in a populated area where there is law enforcement jeopardizes law enforcement because when they come, they now can't tell who's shooting and the the, the shooting uh, uh, proliferates and uh, accelerates. Finally, let's listen to Paul Clement's rebuttal to New York's argument. He asserts the most salient point of all, which is that real-world experience in some of America's most populous cities shows that concealed carry works and does not lead to the chaos predicted by anti-gun zealots. 
Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Just a few quick points in rebuttal. First of all, I want to highlight that when the government was asked for its interest behind this permitting regime, it said that if it went to a different regime, it would multiply the number of firearms in circulation. In a country with the Second Amendment as a fundamental right, simply having more firearms cannot be a problem and can't be a government interest just to put a cap on the number of firearms. And that just underscores how completely non-tailored this law is. It might be well-tailored to keeping the number of handguns down, but it's not well-tailored to identifying people who pose a particular risk or anything else because it deprives a typical New Yorker of their right to carry for self-defense. Second point I want to make is just about population density. There's been a lot of discussion about that, but it's very much a double-edged sword because when there's a population density, that's an awful lot of people who all have Second Amendment rights. And so you can't just simply say we're not going to have Second Amendment rights in the areas where there's dense population. And I would say here experience does tell you a lot. By my count, seven of the ten largest cities in America measured by population are in shall-issue jurisdictions. And I've mentioned them, cities like Phoenix, Chicago, Houston. These are large cities where it hasn't been a problem. If you want to look at the empirical evidence, and I know, Justice Breyer, you asked about this, please also look at the English brief on the top side, because it's a very rigorous statistical analysis that shows that as a matter of actually doing statistics right, there's no difference here. And what the only difference you really see is that people who have a handgun for self-defense end up with a better outcome. They're not shot. They're, they're not made victims. But the English brief, I think, is really worth taking a look at. I want to say a quick word just about permitting. Um, there may be limiting permitting in other contexts, like parade permitting, but I'm not aware of any context whatsoever where, in order to get a permit, you have to show that you have a particularly good need to exercise your constitutional right. And I think that is the absolute central defect with New York's regime here. Um, I want to say a quick word about the history that my friend from the Solicitor General's office emphasized. Um, it's telling that his first example is Tennessee. If you look at the Heller decision, Tennessee is a problematic state in terms of its history. Uh, the court gave that Tennessee Supreme Court first came out with the IMET decision, which the majority opinion in Heller criticized. It then came out with the Simpson decision and the Andrews decision, both of which protected Second Amendment rights, and the majority opinion in Heller praised those decisions at the same time that it criticized AMET. So to the extent there was an 1821 statute, I would put it in the same box as the AMET decision. Texas, which is their next example, and their only other uh, 19th century example, if I heard my friend correctly, is even more problematic to rely on because Texas had a specific constitutional amendment that was similar to the English Bill of Rights but different from the Second Amendment that allowed the legislature to put specific restrictions on the right. So relying on 1871 Texas is highly problematic from a historical perspective, and that just leaves them with 20th century examples, which we concede, but by that point, the collective rights view of the Second Amendment was everywhere. Let me finish just by saying there's absolutely no need for a remand here. There are interesting statistics that could be developed, but none of them are relevant to the two central defects in this regime. First, that in order to exercise a constitutional right that New York is willing to concede extends outside the home, you have to show that you have an atypical need to exercise the right that distinguishes you from the general community. That describes a privilege. It does not describe a constitutional right. That is a sufficient basis to invalidate the law, but then there's the discretion. 
And the discretion here has real-world costs. If you want to look at it, look at the amicus brief in our support by the Bronx public defenders and other public defenders. The cost of this kind of discretion is that people are charged with violent crimes, even though they have no private, no prior record, just because they are trying to exercise their constitutional right to self-defense. And if you want to know how this impacts policing, one of the way essentially making everybody in New York City a presumptive person who is unlawfully carrying is that leads to stopping and frisking everybody. The framers, I think, had a different vision of the Fourth Amendment and the Second Amendment, and that is that individuals get to make their decision about whether or not they want to carry a firearm outside the home for self-defense. In 43 states, people are able to do that. It has not, it doesn't mean everybody ends up caring, and it doesn't mean that those 43 states have any more problems with violent crimes or anything else than the six or seven jurisdictions that don't honor the text, the history of the Second Amendment, and Heller. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted. States are already feeling the effects of the Bruin decision. Maryland suspended a law similar to that of New York just two weeks after the decision, and California Hawaii, Massachusetts, and New Jersey must rewrite their laws under threat of legal challenges. Three additional states, Connecticut, Delaware, and Rhode Island, may need to update their laws as well. More importantly, the majority decision authored by Justice Thomas gave explicit instructions to lower courts on how to correctly decide Second Amendment cases and it sends a message to lawmakers around the country that the Second Amendment is not a second-class right subject to special rules and blatant infringements. No other constitutionally enumerated right has been so willfully violated and widely vilified as the Second Amendment, and this ruling goes a long way toward rolling back modern misunderstandings and misguided laws that seek to prevent citizens from exercising a right that stands beside other rights in the U.S. Bill of Rights. Make no mistake, those with no respect for the Second Amendment won't change their view or comply fully without further litigation. But we now have the ruling that will make change possible. If you want to listen to the entire oral argument, go to oye.org. That's O y-e-z dot org and search for Bruin, B-R-U-E-N. And don't forget that Buckeye Firearms Association submitted one of the key briefs in this landmark case dealing with the statute of Northampton about which there was significant discussion in the oral arguments. BFA is proud to have played a key role in this momentous case and I'd like to personally invite you to become a paid member if you're not already, so you can help us continue to fight for your Second Amendment rights. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at buckeyefirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, Go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org.
www.keepandbear.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.